when, when we don't recognize and at least speak to challenges that are coming from different sides of the field, what that does is it poisons the conversation to a large extent to then where we begin to then question each other's motives and, and underlying assumptions. And when that happens, it's really bad because we become one directional leaders in the worst way. Instead of one directional leaders who have a strength in one area, but are also attuned to other areas, we become super strong in one area and then become blind to other areas totally. You're listening to As in Heaven, a Christian conversation on race and justice. Today's conversation with Trevin Wax is all about multi-directional leadership and how leaders in the church need to be on guard from threats on both sides of the political spectrum. He talks about what white evangelicals can learn from the historically black church and the importance of teachability as we enter into hard conversations. Trevin brings approachable wisdom and thoughtfulness to the issues at hand and gave us an interview full of light bulb moments. Jim Davis is your host. Justin Holcomb is the guest co-host on this episode. Mike Graham and myself, Matt Kenyon, are the producers. And without further ado, please enjoy this episode of As in Heaven with Trevin Wax. All right, welcome to As in Heaven Season 2, COVID edition. Uh, I'm Jim Davis. I'm joined socially distanced by Justin Holcomb at the other end of this long boardroom, which, fun fact, this used to be the Orlando Magic boardroom table. So he's at the other end of this long table. And we're joined today by Trevin Wax. Trevin is the Senior Vice President of Theology and Communications at Lifeway. Um, You are a visiting professor at Wheaton College Uh, You're the general editor of the Gospel uh, Project and the author of multiple books, including Rethink Yourself, This Is Our Time, Eschatological Discipleship, and Gospel-Centered Teaching. Trevin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Glad to talk with you guys. Hey, little little fun fact there, Jim. Um, Back in the day when he got started at Lifeway, we have a mutual friend in Ed Stetzer, and I got to invite Ed to come speak, and he brought Trevin and said, hey, this is this is who he is. And from day one, I think it was like within a month of him starting there. And so uh, it was it was really wonderful to meet you because I remember thinking then just some of the dinners and some of the, the teaching that you did, I thought, this guy knows how to think. I like the way he thinks. I like watching him think. And it, w- it, was, it was good content, but it wasn't so much the content because content is something you can do or not do, but being able to think and with clarity and communicate, I was impressed then. And then I, you've been on my radar screen. And uh, so one of the reasons is because the, the blog post you wrote is an example of that that we'll get into. But um, thank you for being here. It's just fun to connect after a few more years and, and see the trajectory that God had you on that you get to do with your ministry. Well, I really appreciate that, Justin. It's been, it's been fun to watch you and some of the resources that you've provided too. I mean, when my and my dad, who's planting a church in his 50s, comes up to me and says, hey, I really want to read these Justin Holcomb books on, you know, know your heretics and know your, and I'm, I'm like, I'm pulling them off my shelf and giving them to, to my dad thinking, you know, this guy that I met 10 years ago is, is serving people across the country, probably in ways you didn't even know. So I appreciate that. Thank you. That's wonderful to hear. Yeah. Well, speaking of, uh, he referenced something you wrote, you've, you've written and spoken about multi-directional leadership. Um, and I'd love, uh, 
for you to explain to the average person what that is and how that how that really uh, applies to our cultural moment now, specifically as it comes to racial injustice. So I, I wrote a series on this last year, um, and really it wasn't the the racial justice conversations were not what I was thinking about when I was writing it. I was writing it a little more generally. Um, but it's something that concerns me about evangelicalism in general. Um, everything about us in the social media age tends to reward playing to your base and, and, and making whoever is following you uh, feel affirmed in their perspective at all times. And generally um, what that leads to, what, what, that, what, what happens in the church is that you wind up with leaders, pastors, shepherds of the flock, who are, 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 are very attuned to dangers that could pose a threat to the flock from what I like to say is one side of the field, okay? So if the danger is an encroaching, let's take the, um, a, a different topic of conversation, but uh, you know, there's conversations uh, about liberalism and more conservative or fundamentalist theology and whatnot. If your concern is constantly to be on guard against anything that would lead to a slippery slope to liberalism, then you may be, be well-equipped to fend off dangers from those that you see to your left without recognizing that sneaking up behind you on this other side is, you know, is a, um, uh, either a hyper-fundamentalism or is a uh, um, other, there's slippery slopes that go in this other direction as well that could lead to a, a real lovelessness that could then infect the, the flock as well. But you're so attuned to the danger on one side that you don't see the danger on the other. And I've seen people... I call them one directional leaders. They will react and then they'll flip sides. They'll actually recognize that there's a danger over here and they'll be so, I guess, stunned that there's a danger on this other side that then they turn around and now they no longer ever speak to anything that would look like it was in you know, any danger of, of drifting left because now they're just all concerned about the danger from the right. And so what, what we need in evangelicalism, I think, are pastors and shepherds who who can recognize dangers coming from different sides of the field toward the flock and can, and can then fight them effectively to be multi-directional, meaning they can move around and they can be flexible without always uh, and only being on, on, on one side attuned to dangers and, and problems. In, in, in your article, you had the category of challenges and opportunities. So it's really helpful naming different pitfalls on both sides that you're, you're missing out on, the challenge and the opportunity. You use an example of John Stott, which was really helpful. So to, you, use it, you know, used a, a broad example, but for Christians who are listening to this, who are, you know, read their Bible, have these categories, could you give the John Stott example? And, and also, how does this play out with um, Paul and James? That was, it was, it was pinpointed, it was clear, and I think it'll be helpful for people to hear so with, with, with Stott, um, I, I really look up to Stott a lot. I've read, I think, everything the guy wrote. He's, he's a hero of mine. Um, don't agree with him on everything. Still just found him to be a fount of wisdom. Are you going to make a point about baptism? 
Well, that's just one of the things I don't agree with him on. Jim and I keep on talking about. He's an Anglican, so he's he's definitely one of the one of the people that I actually like. One of our few heroes is like him and J.I. Packer and a few others. I'm like, yeah, they're famous in Anglicans, and that's about it. <laughs> so. Well, there are there are famous Anglicans, and and rightly so. And John Stott's one of them. What what I find what I found fascinating about reading biographies of John Stott and reading a lot of his work is that. Um, this stood out to me, and I think it's more rare today than it was then. But back in the 1970s, and I can't remember the exact dates, I think I have them in the original posts on multidirectional leadership, but Stott got up in front of an ecumenical assembly and really chastised the assembly, challenged them, and said, I, in all of your talk about social work and making the world a better place and you know being on mission for Jesus, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but I don't sense any weeping or tears for lost people. And his point was, you are missing that, like the, the the heart of the Great Commission is evangelism, is people coming to to faith in Christ and being saved from eternal destruction. And and so Scott could get up in in front of an assembly like that and and speak boldly and prophetically. I like to say he sound in that in that environment sounded like a fiery fundamentalist. Okay. Well, then months later. He's in a different assembly of evangelicals with Billy Graham, and Bill, he and Billy Graham had something of a showdown over this, which is really interesting if you want to look up the history. But uh, the Lozano uh, um, Congress, and and there is about to walk out of the entire event if they're not going to include social ministry as being included as part of the the mission of the church. I mean, at that point was was basically uh, standing up saying you have lost the great commandment in pursuit of your evangelism with the Great Commission, you have to have both of these together. Now, I'm not saying that John Stott got it all completely right or that I agree with him totally in the way that he defined the mission of the church and the way he put all of this together. That's not my point. It's not to say that the guy was infallible and he did it all right. To me, though, the instructive thing is to realize that in one environment, speaking to one group of people, he can sound like a fundamentalist. And then the other environment, speaking to another group of people, can sound like a social justice warring liberal, okay? What was going on there? Well, you don't have a guy who's two-faced. You have a guy with very firm convictions that recognizes the needs of the particular people God has called him to serve in that moment, and then is is speaking prophetically, not just to be affirmed and and to coddle the crowd, but and, and to receive their acclamation, but to, to to speak in a way that he believes that particular group needs to hear. Um, and I think we see this with the apostles. I, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that Paul and James are on different sides of a justification debate because they're not. I look at them as two swordsmen who are back to back fighting off opposing enemies. Paul's fighting off the enemies who would threaten the doctrine of justification by faith alone. James is fighting off those who would say that saving faith doesn't necessarily lead to good works. Those are, those are not contradictory stances. They're together, and they're, they're like two shepherds in the field, and there's the flock, and one's fighting on one side and one's fighting on the other. They've got each other's backs. That's, in my opinion, both of those are good examples of what we need more of in the church today, which is multidirectional leadership that is able to, to, to fend off opposing challenges and to find different opportunities. Well, all right. I want to try to apply that. Help help us apply that. Maybe in a church setting or people leading Christian organizations. I know I've talked to different leaders who are trying to figure out, really, in the race conversation, where the enemy views are. Um, how how wide is is the umbrella? At what point? You know, some people ask, how far is too far? Going either either way. So, how do you coach 
leaders who are wanting to uh, lead well, whether it's a church organization or maybe even a business um, in, into this conversation? When, when we ask on, on conversations related to race and generally the, the disagreements um, are among, among brothers and sisters who have a lot of confessional commonality, the disagreements tend to be in two areas, I think. One is the awareness of the significance of a threat in one, on one side of the field. Okay, so for example, if, if you believe that the pervasive dominant threat right now to the church in the United States is the ongoing structural persistence of racism and, it, and, and how it um, affects African-Americans, then you're going to be more likely to, to give short shrift to people that are throwing out labels and things and concerned about ideologies from this side because you see the danger is very much present right over here. And we'll make the case. This is where the danger is. This, you guys that are talking about dangers on coming from this side of the field, that's not really the danger that we've got to face right now. We have this danger to face. On the other side, you'll find other people who would say, you know, would agree that racism is an abhorrent moral evil and all sorts of things, but who, who tend to be totally focused on anti-Christian ideologies that they see assumptions being smuggled into a lot of the, the conversations we're having about race and are sort of on high alert over here who are, you'll find them hardly talking about egregious examples of racial injustice because they're so attuned to the to this situation on, on this side. Now, I recognize we all have different callings um, and there may be some people who are more equipped to be uh, um, engaged in a battle on one side than another. I, I don't know that we all have to try to be equal and the amount of time we give to everything, I think that could lead us to, uh, to challenges of its own. So I'm not, I'm not saying that there are not people who have different strengths in opposing some of these dangers. But when, when we don't recognize and at least speak to challenges that are coming from different sides of the field, what that does is it poisons the conversation to a large extent to then where we begin to then question each other's motives and, and underlying assumptions. And when that happens... It's really bad because we become one directional leaders in the worst way. Instead of one directional leaders who have a strength in one area, but are also attuned to other areas, we become super strong in one area and then become blind to other areas totally. And and then we wind up separating from the brothers and sisters that God may have put there to keep us balanced and multidirectional in our leadership. I mean, what, what if in such a time as this, God has people with different emphases that that uh, are there for the good of the church and for our own leadership to keep us from going down the, the 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 path that we would be most likely if we were to be tempted to move away from fidelity to the gospel. What if God is putting people with different emphases together in so that there's a multi-directional leadership culture that would keep us from drifting in these areas where we hold each other accountable in these ways? The, the concern is that we become polarized and then we wind up really being on our own. And I think it's easier then for people to then go down what we call slippery slopes and things, which I know can be a fallacious part of argument uh, arguing, but I think it's accurate to say there are slopes on more than one side of almost any issue. And as you're describing that, that I'm thinking that requires a lot of humility for a leader to hear what you just said and for a community to do that. And it sounded something like body of Christ imagery. 
of roles and how that working together looks like for the sake of unity of the gospel of the kingdom. It's not just unity for some type of generic unity sake, but for a purpose. And, and so that, that was just helpful of that just exuding the call for humility in that as a leader. Um, as we're going to start segueing toward what does this mean with regard to, as Jim said, the, the conversation about race, uh, I do just want to ask really simply, you, you use the phrase racial injustice. And I'd like for you just to say a few words about that. Naming it like that is important. Uh, is there an intentionality of that? And second to that point, as you talked about, Christians have should have a robust understanding of the doctrine of sin and not be surprised by sin and injustice. Uh, as an example, when my wife and I started working with regard to abuse, and it's, abuse is a great example of sin. It's the doctrine of it's a great illustration of the doctrine of sin and how evil manifests itself. But Christians seem to be the most shocked. The very people who had a category for something that is um, against God, it's from the heart, it has an activity, it causes destruction. Um, it's interesting that people seem to be surprised. So I'm looking for. Uh, anything about racial injustice, how intentional was that, and just a few thoughts on the surprise of the reality of sin in the context of racial injustice. I, I, I don't know the exact reason I gravitated toward using racial injustice over other things. I mean, you could, some would say race relations, some would say racial reconciliation, and perhaps in our, in many of our evangelical circles anyway, you, you hear, um, you know, social justice has its own connotations and can carry a lot of baggage depending on who you're talking with. I want to pinpoint the fact that injustice in, in any sense is egregious to God. Injustice based on race is egregious to God as well. And these are the this is these are the examples being lifted to the surface now in a lot of our cultural conversations. So I've seen studies done in the last um, just to give a, a few examples, not that, that really don't relate to the more extreme examples we've seen of whether it be um, police brutality and other uh, uh, other areas or the amount of stops that someone of a person of color may have in their car versus versus other people. I, in in some of the favoritism and the sin of partiality, I think that we have there, there have been studies done about you know African American or people that have names that sound black as compared to white, you know, uh, getting less callbacks and studies that they've done when they're applying for a job, for example. So, you know, a Jamal may not get called, may get a, a certain number of uh, fewer callbacks than a Greg. What was fascinating to me is I, I remember reading an article a couple of years ago, and I could actually did studies of churches where they actually tested churches this way. And they emailed, they had families that emailed the, the, the church leaders um, to find out how many would get a personal touch from the pastor based on the name sounding black or sounding white. And what was fascinating were that evangelicals scored better than mainline denominations on, on being more diverse on that question, which I think would shock most people because a lot of mainline denominations are constantly talking about diversity and talking about, you know, the, the need to, uh, uh, to embrace all cultures, ethnicities, whatnot. That, those would be small examples, meaning small, not in the sense that they do violence uh, physically to, to people of color, but are certainly areas of injustice that appear to be influenced heavily by, by, by race. And so that's why I'm, I'm using that kind of terminology when we're talking about racial injustice as it manifests itself, not only in laws and in structures and systems even, but just in a sort of pervasive uh, um, uh, attitudes that can, that can influence uh, how people lead. 
and how people do the work they do. Well, I, I appreciate even the way that you um, you set up charitability and believing the best. I know in our in our church with our elders, we we have to talk a lot about believing the best where we disagree, and that just that that's a game changer when you have a group of people who are willing to do that across across views. Um, I want to get really practical when you when you talk about these two sides. One of the more confusing um, and maybe even more tense issues right now is like how do how does um, evangelicalism process Black Lives Matter the, and and how do you distinguish distinguishing the groups you know and and where where are the two um, the two enemies what does that look like how do you process multi directional leadership specifically on that topic. When we talk about Black Lives Matter, we have to, it's one of those things where we, evangelicals need to define what they're talking about. I think we can do this. I just don't, this is one of those areas where I just, I'm puzzled and I want to, uh, I, I think we're better than this. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can make distinctions. This isn't that hard, but I'm, I'm amazed at how hard it is for some people to differentiate between an organization called Black Lives Matter BLM capital letters, if you'd like to put it that way, and Black Lives Matter as a hashtag, a statement, a theological truth, um, where that is really intending to say Black Lives Matter also. <laughs> Black Lives Matter too, because the, referencing the the widespread sentiment in many for many in our society that Black lives seem to matter less than other people's lives. That is um, uh, something that I I I don't think from a Christian standpoint, a theological perspective, that truth should be controversial. The, the question comes about with the, the organization, which is admittedly anti-Christian, anti-nuclear family, actual uh, uh, anti-traditional Christianity's traditional sexual ethic. I mean, it's admittedly so. I think where the challenge comes for a lot of people on, on both sides of that heated slogan is there are those that are afraid to say Black Lives Matter because they don't want to give credence to that organization. Um, and they're more, again, more worried about what the danger over here. And then there are others who have no qualms about using that slogan, hashtag, unqualified, wherever, because they don't see the organization as really posing the big threat. They see white evangelicals apathy or uh, not willing, will, unwillingness to address or even to make a statement like that as being the, as being the, the bigger challenge. Uh, as being the the bigger problem. And so what what you've got in a situation like that is, I I don't think it's where it's the church at its best. The church was at the forefront of the civil rights movement. The church is not at the forefront in, in, certainly not at the forefront of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is more secular. Um, Micah Edmondson did an amazing talk, I think a prophetic talk about this topic uh, for the Gospel Coalition's council members a few years ago, in which he made distinctions between Black Lives Matter, the movement, and the civil rights movement. But one of the things that comes out very loudly and clearly in that, in that talk that he was saying is, why is the church letting them lead? Why is the church letting them take a theological slogan and in some ways hijack our theological truth in order to then have their own agendas? And so there's almost a pleading of some African-American brothers and sisters with uh, white evangelicals to to make these proper distinctions, yes, but to be full-throated in its endorsement of the theological truth that is is true when we say Black Lives Matter, and to not immediately jump to say all lives matter or these lives matter. No one here is trying to say Black Lives Matter more than any other lives. The the, the point is in a in a society where many uh, African Americans feel like their lives have been undervalued. That white brothers and sisters saying that, using that slogan, using that that term 
are are giving an affirmation of the image of God in 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 people. So for whatever reason, it's become super controversial. It's very closely connected to politics, of course. But I I think the church. I th- I just think we can do we can do better. We can we can make distinctions. We can define things. We don't have to be beholden to one partisan political take on on something over against another. Have a quick clarifying question for you and this is this is literally a clarifying question. I'm not pushed back nothing. There's not a trap door. Uh, I read the uh, Black Lives Matter organizational um, commitments um, family sexual ethics and and you said uh, I think you said anti-christian or non-christian um, I didn't see that, but that could just be my ignorance. And so I just want to make sure that uh, if someone is listening to this and they hear you say that, they go, well, you know, of course, that, well, why, why are we even paying attention if there's a slogan connected to this organization? What, let's throw everything out if it's anti-Christian or non-Christian. So just really quickly on the relationship to Christianity, uh, can you say a few more thoughts about that? Yeah, that, that's a that's a really good clarifying question. When I use the term anti-Christian, I don't mean that the movement itself is explicitly anti-Christian and that it's naming Christianity that it's opposing. I mean some of the stances that are are being uh, taken by the organization would be anti-Christian in in their in in what they are fundamentally. Um, but here here's here's what I would say to those who say, why would we even use a slogan or an affirmation that has an organization associated with it with problematic elements. I think white evangelicals do this all the time. I think we, we make those kinds of distinctions and differentiations consistently when it comes to party platforms in politics, when it comes to um, our own history and some of, how, some, some of our own institutions and how they were started and the people we honor in institutions and how we've, the inheritance we've received have views that were distinctively anti-Christian. Um, I see it happening even among white evangelicals who are very concerned right now about critical race theory and intersectionality and these um, ideologies that they would see as antithetical to the gospel. I, I see them without any trouble associating with organizations or people who are outright atheists, who are also pointing out the trouble there. Secularists who are concerned about white fragility, you, finding partnerships pretty easily with um, publications, for example, that would have what I would see as, in the end, anti-Christian commitments. So I just, I just would want to say, just as you as a white evangelical, if you've got challenges with the, the Black Lives Matter slogan because of the movement, don't, don't hold your brother or sister to a standard that you're not holding yourself to. If you're going to judge by problematic associations or possible associations, then I think you know, it's kind of the speck in the log thing. Like we've all, we've all got areas where there may be, someone could trace a trail and say there's problematic associations there. I think assuming the best would lead us away from that. One one example, because you, you talked about atheism and there's a book by Merrill Westfall called like religion, uh, faith and suspicion or something like that. And, uh, he's, reformed, was a pastor at the time, wrote that book. And it looks at Marx, Nietzsche, and Freud as uh, helpful to read for confession. And he said, obviously, they're atheists. Obviously, we're not assuming their worldview. But their critique of religion is all too true all too much of the time for Orthodox Christianity. But they're actually critiquing idols. So let's read them as friends when they're critiquing 
the ways we make idols out of our theological beliefs. But of course, of course, we don't believe their ideology. And that, what, what a great example. I mean, you, if we can go that far, how much, how much more can we actually pay attention to a term, a slogan, a motif, a theological truth that black lives matter because it's said in the context where they're assumed to not matter or the experience is that we don't feel like we matter. So I, that's why you're, you're so helpful in the way you think through this. I want to want to ask, because I'm imagining if someone's listening to this and they're going to take you up on the humility call and become self-reflective, what are certain barriers perhaps for being able to think through Jim's question and your answer about the difference between a statement, a slogan, and I don't say slogan to dismiss it, but a statement versus an organizational platform. Um, two that I'm thinking of is a, a scarcity mentality. No, to, to say black lives matters, a scarcity mentality would hear that and go, black lives matter, all lives matter. And you're like, yeah, yeah. But, but highlighting that black lives matter isn't taking away from all the other lives. It's actually just accentuating. It's not minimizing one to, to accentuate the other. It's actually just highlighting it to make a point. So I'm thinking scarcity mentality might be going on. Um, another one would be one's identity. It's, as, as you said, it's much easier to our primary identity can be along, along political or national identity, where we seem to be of a political or national identity first, and then Christian, as opposed to I'm I'm a member of the you know the kingdom of God. I'm a Christian. That's my identity, and launching out of that. So I'm I'm wondering I might not be right on either one of those scarcity mentality or political identity as being too high. But what are some potential barriers as someone's starting to kind of like look inward and, and think about their heart, their emotions, their actions, their bias, their prejudice, their racism. What are some barriers to actually get through that? I, I think the the number one barrier in not just this issue, but in a lot of issues is, um, is, is being unteachable. It's, it's the, the idea that I have something to say. I don't necessarily have anything to learn. I, that's more of an attitude than a statement. I don't see people saying that. When, when you step into conversations like this, a lot of listening has to happen. I think one of the most important things someone can do, not just in this conversation, but in other areas as well, is to to be aware of potential drift in their own life. I mean, I've, I've done this with um, church leaders just individually in, in their own, um, when, we, when we talk about sins, what are the sins that are most likely to trip you up? Because that's where you want to be focusing your attention. If it's you know, lust, or if it's uh, pride, or if it's apathy and sloth, or whatever, whatever the sins are that are most likely to trip you up, would be areas where you would want to to learn and you would want to to grow. I think in when we talk about multidirectional leadership and we talk about issues like this, where we all, I think we all have a lot of learning to do. I think the question we should wrestle with is to say, if I were more likely to move away from orthodoxy or move away from a Christian ethical stance, which side of the field, the danger would be more compelling to me. It would be the way I would tend to, to lean. And then when you recognize what that would be, the answer then is, is not simply to say, okay, I'm aware of that. And I just sort of go back to on to my own practices where I'm teaching and pushing in this direction I'm pushing, but to intentionally bring voices into your life that are going to challenge you and hold you accountable in those areas where you would be likely to, to drift. I don't think you can do that without some sense of self and theological awareness and humility to say, I need to be taught here because I'm as vulnerable as anyone else to, to, to falling short here. Um, have fallen short, 
in the past, will fall short again. But I, I don't want falling short to be the pattern in my life. So how can I diversify the number of voices I'm listening to so that I'm really heeding warnings and making sure that I'm not moving in a direction? I've seen people on this issue in particular, I've seen people who started off in a direction and now are fully in the camp that I would say have become basically all right. I mean, it's, it is uh, to, to where the, the Christian commitment where, I mean, the pro-life commitment is gone now because they're, they, I mean, all of the genetic inferiority they believe is true among the races and, and whatnot. I've seen that happen. I've also seen people on the other side of this conversation progress right out of orthodoxy to where then it's, you know, everything is about mother nature, black goddess within you. I mean, where they've moved completely out of not just evangelicalism, but Christian orthodoxy altogether. That can happen. That can happen. Hopefully that, that won't be the norm, but both of those things can happen. The question is, which one is more likely to be the direction you would lean and find people who will, will keep you standing in a, in a healthy and, and good spot? Doesn't mean we all have to have the exact same emphases, but that's the that's the goal that we would be standing and would be faithful, um, multi-directional leaders. As you're describing the two possible directions that one could go, I could feel it because I'm pretty traditional evangelical Orthodox. Um, it's almost easier to look at the drift in the opposite direction of what you are, more progressive, and go, oh boy. Yeah, a little bit too conservative. Well, it's not as bad. I mean, it's, it's JV bad. It's not like varsity bad. And, and then those on the progressive side will be like, you know, same thing. They just flip it around, and it's so much easier. And that's what's so helpful about what you're saying is, is the call to look at both and say yeah, the move to your political identity trumping Jesus um, and his kingdom and his kingdom's ethic is sin. It's, you, you don't, you don't um, – treat it lightly. And so is the move out of orthodoxy. Both are moves out of orthodoxy at a certain point. And that's what, but just being able to feel like the benefit of the doubt to your team, if you're more traditional or more you know, moderate progressive, uh, is, uh, is just something to, to highlight for me is my experience. Yeah. I like how you distinguish between JV and varsity. Like we, we can acknowledge what's our JV, what's the JV side of this and what's the varsity side of it. And that would help us understand the way that we would naturally lean. Um, and so you, I, Trevin, you said one of the important things is to then surround yourself with other voices to, to distinguish between what you see on TV and our dear brothers and sisters of color and their experience and what they're saying, because that, that's shaped me more than anything, just real people in my life. All right, we're running uh, down to the end here. Um, I, you mentioned the difference between the civil rights movement led by MLK and then the current Black Lives Matter movement. Now, I think this is really interesting to flood the, the, some of the differences that you see. Help us help us understand them. I, you know, I was, I was building on Micah Edmondson's work, at least in recognizing the difference of um, the, the, the church's influence and presence in the civil rights movement compared to the Black Lives Matter movement. But what, what's interesting, and I, this is um, something that I think we're, we're going to have to work through together as a society, but some of the proposals that are with groups that would be more associated with the organization Black Lives Matter, not just um, the, 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 the statement, the theological statement, some of the proposals are almost utopian in their vision. Of, of where society could be and revolutionary in the sense of seeing society as um, hopelessly corrupt and forever racist 
without progress being possible with the current order that we have. That's something that's really happening to where it's actually leading to strange bedfellows. This is where I would recommend people, we, we've got we've to understand history a little better. Not the, not the whitewashed, sanitized version of history, but history with all of its just egregious failures and flaws, and at the same time, all of its amazing goods that we've inherited. You, you downplay either of those, and you wind up with a, an altered view of, of, uh, of history that can, can lead us astray pretty quickly. But it's to speak of interesting bedfellows, so, you know, there's this, there's a controversial New York Times podcast and, and project going on with the, the 1619 podcast and the 1619 project, which has been has been contested even from secular historians. So it's not this is not a Christian, non-Christian debate. There's a lot of debate in society over over this. But the to sum up the 1619 project, it instead of it being 1776 as sort of the founding of the United States over against Great Britain or whatnot, they the the case is being made through a lot of what's being published there that slavery is really the driving force um, and racism is the driving force for the founding of America from from the very from beginning to end. It's a it's a, a what I would say is a reductionist approach to looking at history through this lens, which I think is one of the challenges you find in uh, Ibram Kendi's book, for example, Stamp uh, from the Beginning, which while helpful in a lot of the information it gives about the history of race in in the United States, um, also tends to be pretty reductionist in that motives are, or, or racism is simply assumed to be motivating, dominating factors through, through everything. What's fascinating, though, is that in making the case that the founding documents of the United States, the founders of the United States, basically all racist, white supremacist to the core, that this is the dominating, motivating factor for, for everything, even among the abolitionists of the time, that that being the, the, the case, they're making the case that our founding ideals are themselves infected and tainted by, um, by, by racism. The irony of talking about strange bedfellows, the irony, though, is that they're actually agreeing with John C. Calhoun over against Frederick Douglass. John C. Calhoun made the point when he was arguing for the extension of slavery, for slavery as a positive good in the 1800s, he was making this argument that our country was founded on basically on white supremacy, white superiority, and, and that's why slavery must continue, whereas it was Frederick Douglass who was holding up the words of the founders saying, this is the ideal, slavery falls short of what they've said, and, and having a sort of a higher vision of the founding itself. So in a very strange twist, you have people on the far left who their take on the founding of the United States are aligning more with the the, the slave promoting senator in the 1800s. So all, all that to say is history helps shine light a little bit on some of these proposals, on some of how we we think through them, um, some of the questions about racial identity in white terms, white fragility that are I, trying to create an identity politics that has a white identity has uh, strangely some things in common with uh, groups throughout history that have done this, like the KKK, like Hitler's Aryan youth. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that they're, they're, they're going in the same direction. They're not, but there's commonalities there that you start to see and you realize some of the proposals that are out there today are not actually going to lead us to a, a better spot. They have uh, wrong assumptions about humanity, wrong assumptions about sin, wrong understanding of grace, and costly forgiveness. And of course, devoid of the gospel, don't have lasting hope anyway. There may be helpful things here and there that you find, but will will not bring bring lasting change. So we're going to have to be really attuned to these things. I think this conversation has just 
is just getting going. I hope we'll be multidirectional in the way that we lead out on these questions and are able to, to talk through them with charity, assuming the best of brothers and sisters, even that may disagree on finer points. I'm sure there are people listening to this that disagree with me on any number of things I've said. I'll extend the charity to listen and want to hear charity, receive charity back as, as that conversation continues. Well, in our three minutes that we have left, uh, as you talk about learning from history, you make the case that the future of, of evangelicalism, and specifically um, white evangelicalism, could learn a lot from the historic black church. Uh, what is it that we can learn? I, one of the reasons I think that it's important for us to really listen to our black brothers and sisters who have a, he, a strong inheritance in the black church is because for centuries now, black evangelical Christians— who, whether they would use the word evangelical or not, I'm using that word theologically speaking, not politically speaking, but black brothers and sisters, black churches that would adhere to what we would consider to be central evangelical tenets of Christianity, they have learned to lead from the margins. They've had to lead from the margins. They had no other option but to lead from the margins, to cultivate a culture within their congregations, to lead to uh, robust uh, traditional evangelical faith within their congregations, to be salt and light in the world, and then to address society from a position of not having the reins of power. That's been the legacy, one of the legacies of the, the, the Black church. White Christians right now, many are very up in arms about losing some of the cultural power that they've had. Now, we've had a lot of wins at the Supreme Court when it comes to religious liberty and carve-outs and exemptions and whatnot. But it's one thing to lose religious liberty, and it's another thing to lose religious power or relig- or the, the cultural power in the same time. And a lot of evangelicals are realizing we are definitely, when it comes to morality anyway, we are in the minority, certainly in the minority, certainly not going to be perhaps in the future as close to lever traditional levers of power and influence as we have been in the past. So if we're going to be doing a lot of ministry from the margins, who better to learn from and to let take the lead in helping us understand that better than Black brothers and sisters who have led from the margins, and whose history, um, as we look at the legacy of the Black church, has been leading from the margins for centuries. That's when I think one of the things we have, we have a lot to learn. Just in the history of the Black church, the legacy of the Black church, yes, challenges and failings in the Black church, but also uh, uh, strengths that the, the wider body of Christ needs to receive from, from this uh, uh, tradition. And I hope that that will be the case as we move forward, that we'll really grow in our ability to learn from and to glean insight from those who have gone before us. Well, I, I've never heard it said better. Thank you. Thank you for all you're doing, for joining us. Um, I, I forgot to thank you in the beginning for the Gospel Project, your work there. We use that here in our church. We use it at my former church. So just thanks for everything you're involved with, and, and thank you for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. Honored to be with you. For more interviews, resources, and discussion questions based on the content you've heard, go to asinheaven.com. That's A-S-I-N-H-V-N.com. If you liked this episode, please take a second to give us a five-star rating on iTunes, which you can do right from the Apple Podcasts app if you're listening there, or take a second to share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.